wow, wow. Um, there's nothing quite like seeing the active hand of Christ moving in and through each of us as we serve and love one another. So what makes church so special is, is the family um, that is able to serve each other in that way. Can I ask someone to get me a bottle of water from downstairs, please? Otherwise, I'm going to be very dry this morning. <laughs> That's a cheesy pastor's joke, by the way. This morning, we're turning to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll also be looking at uh, verse 7. If uh, you have your Bible or Bible app, that's where we're going to be all morning for the most part. So I encourage you to uh, put your finger in there, have it there on uh, your app. And we're taking a look at Jesus, uh, our high priest. Um, anyone here perfect? We got one. We got one person that's perfect here. <laughs> anyone else? Anyone ever? Everyone uh, ever said to yourself, "Man, I have." definitely made it. Like, I have reached the pinnacle of humanity. Look at me. Thank you so much, Mark. How about this question? Has anyone ever found themselves using the excuse? It's not completely an excuse, but sometimes it's, it's phrased as an excuse. Well, no one's perfect. Anyone ever found themselves saying, saying that to someone? I know I have said it, maybe not in those exact words all the time, but often we use that as an excuse. We use it to justify a mistake or we use it to explain away wrongdoing or, or sin. Uh, sometimes maybe it's just a way that we feel better about ourselves. Ah, I can't can't be any worse than this guy or this girl over here. Like, have you heard what they've done? Like, this isn't nearly as bad as what they've done. Maybe we're comparing ourselves to someone else and say, well, they're worse than me, so uh, can't be that bad. Like, if, if God loves that person, then I mean, he has to love me, right? And I mean, it's, it's definitely true. Other than one person here, no one's perfect. That's not me, by the way, that I'm talking about. None of us, none of us are perfect. My wife comes pretty close. Hi, baby. I've never called her baby in my life. Sorry about that. But no one, there we go, no one's perfect. Thank you, Kathy. But therein lies, quote, the problem. The, the root of the issue with humanity. The Bible tells us God is perfect. 
God is holy and he alone is truly just. That he does not sin, but indeed he hates sin. And in the long run, he's going to be the ultimate judge of that sin. These are things that we don't talk a lot about in church, um, especially in the modern church, because it's, it's scary. It's not comfortable to face the reality that there is consequences for our actions. We, we say there's always an equal or opposite action or reaction to everything that we do, um, both positively and negatively, um, from day to day. We don't always see that equal or opposite action or reaction immediately. Sometimes we do. But the same is even more true when it comes to the way that I live my life, how I live my life, the guiding principles, who I put my faith in or choose to deny has even more significant reaction or action. We need to recognize that Yes, we are all created in his image. We are all created to know him. We are all created to love and be loved by him. We are all created to worship him, which we did this morning. But then the stain, the warpness of sin, that three-letter word that feels so dirty for so many people to recognize as a reality these days, just it just is um it just is there is sin guess what your pastors were sinful we're fallen beings that are seeking god's grace and forgiveness in our life day after day after day looking for that changing power within us how often have you asked the question how can a people like us have a relationship with such a holy God. Like, when you logic that line of thought out, how is that possible? How is that even plausible? So that such a holy God would make the choice to take notice of someone like Graham William Knowles and say, I love that dude, and I want him to be my child. Like, most of you don't even know my entire life story, I've become, with age, has come a little bit of wisdom, and uh, I'm still working on the wisdom part, but I've learned to kind of keep my story closer to my chest, but man, like, if you only knew the type of person that I was, and that God chose to love me, wow. Everyone of us has this desire to measure up, to prove ourselves, to even justify ourselves. Anyone ever found yourself in that situation like you're, you're trying to justify who you are or prove who you are to someone else or even to yourself? We all want to be a somebody, to make something of ourselves, to make daddy proud, to make our grandparents proud make our boss proud. People, because of that, we find ourselves overworking. 
to buy that BMW and then spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to fix that BMW, to buy a half a million dollar home because that somehow means I've made it. We find ourselves dealing with greed, craving power, thinking if I could just earn more, if I could just do more, if I could just succeed a little bit more, if I could just climb that corporate ladder a little bit higher, then, I, then I'd matter. Then I'd be something. Then my life would make more sense. Then I'd have this epic legacy. I've spent many, many days, hours in the political world in Canada. And, man, people that are politicians care so much about this legacy that they leave behind. And the, the things that they're seen doing and saying to form this legacy that's so temporary. Like, in the long run, through history, very few of us are even going to be remembered for the grandiose things that we think we're doing. And there's something that matters so much more than that. How many of you would agree that deep down, what we all need is to truly know and experience God? More than just in a casual, passing, habitual relationship of Sunday morning church or uh, evening prayers or saying the blessing over the word or over over dinner, but to truly know and experience God in our own life. That we need to find ourselves. Reconciling ourselves before Him daily. The reality is, apart from this relationship with God and knowing His love and forgiveness, we're always going to find ourselves prioritizing other things before Him. We're always going to find ourselves trying to make something of ourselves and our life in different ways that make ourselves feel better. I say this not because I think we're completely ignorant of these facts. Most of us here this morning have been in and around the church for a long time. Let's face it. We have been experiencing church for years after years, decades after decades. But how many know that just because you're in and around the church, you're going into church Sunday morning and leaving, it's still possible to find yourself just kind of going through the motions? Anyone able to recognize that in your own life or lives of people around you? I would challenge you this morning that part of the reason the westernized church, and I'm being very general, I'm not speaking at any one specific person this morning, but part of the reason 
is we found ourselves just going through these motions, this habit of church is becoming a mediocre experience instead of something that we're truly excited about, we're truly involved in, we're truly experiencing the deepness of knowing God. How many of you know that uh, Old Testament priests played an important role? The Old Testament priests uh, were very significant for the life of the Jewish community. I know I have some history buffs, i.e. Donald, that could probably even school me uh, on some of these things. They had an important role in the Old Testament. And even they were sinners. God gave them a system in the Old Testament for priests, for sacrifices. And the sacrifices that the priests offered weren't just on behalf of the people. They were on behalf of them themselves as well. But at the end of the day, it was just a system. It was just a way to point to a greater problem, to a need for a greater priest, a priest that would come and take away the consequences of sin forever, one that would finally and could truly bridge that gap between me and God, who is so holy. And so Hebrews 5 and 7, where we're, we're spending our morning, is all about that. It's all about how Jesus is our better priest, how he's superior and greater than the high priest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. It's about how Jesus surpassed what those priests could ever do. It's about how Jesus and only Jesus can truly take care of of the problem of me being a sinful man. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 1 through 6, I say this every time I preach. I have my Bible here, but I put it on my paper and read directly from my paper because the words are bigger and it's easier for me to read. I'm not depreciating the word of God and reading from direct, exact, exactly from the Bible. It says, starting at verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation of God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Notice it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he did for those of the people. But no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he 
says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He meaning the, the author, uh, the believed author of this passage, Paul, wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand how the priesthood in the Old Testament worked. That they were first off chosen men of God, and they were chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And they were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, dealing with the real sin issue that each and every one of us have. That they were called to be gentle. And the reason they were called to be gentle when dealing with others was because they were no better than anyone else. That they were also sinful and fallen. And they too needed to find forgiveness. So there's no pedestal to be put up on. There's no reason for them to be looking down at another. And then it goes on saying, so also, there's Christ. And Christ didn't just like kind of show up on the picture, but Christ was appointed, says begotten, chosen by God. But he wasn't just any person also that he was also in the order of not Aaron, not the Levites, but someone called Melchizedek, which really isn't mentioned a lot. And then it goes on, picking back up at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source, not a source, the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned again. He shows us, yes, Jesus has something in common with the Old Testament priests. But he's also chosen by God. It shows, it talks about how he took on human flesh, that he walked the earth as one of us to truly know us better. But it should be noted that although he came as flesh, he also came as perfect, the one without sin, making him different. That he is God. He is not just a little bit different because he's perfect, but he is God incarnate. And you'll note that there's this specific mention about the order of Melchizedek. And you may say, why is that mentioned? Thank you for asking. That's a great segue. The reason is, is this Melchizedek was a significant figure for the Hebrews. He uses Melchizedek to teach us about Jesus. In fact, he introduces him here and then says, now we have a lot to talk about. But you're becoming dull in hearing. He goes on a long talk about maturity and even falling away. He gets in this, like, honest conversation saying, listen up, folks. Like, you may not want to hear this, but you need to hear this. Like, 
And then he comes back to the topic of Melchizedek and how he relates to Jesus. If you flip over to chapter 7, picking up at verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I want to stop for a second. There's something really weird here. It says, Melchizedek was a king. And then, comma, priest of the Most High God. That's, in case you didn't realize it, that's kind of weird. Because in the Old Testament, you had your kings, whether they were appointed by God or otherwise, and then you had priests. And typically, it was the priests or judges that came to the king with guidance or correction, or the king came looking for a priest because they were in need. But here you have this Melchizedek that somehow managed to get both jobs. Going on. Uh, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth a part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It's, it's an interesting passage when you really sit down and, and think about it. It goes on, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from their but this man who does not have his descendant from or who has I'm getting lost here, sorry. Let's try this one more time. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the other, uh, sorry, in the one case, ties are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So in case you can't tell, we're really zeroing in on Melchizedek. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken all that time, and I appreciate your time this morning to read that. So who is this Melchizedek? 
this oddity in the Old Testament. The reality is he's only mentioned in two places in the Bible. He's men- mentioned in Genesis 14, in, in two other places, I should say. In Genesis 14 and in Psalms 110. In Genesis 14, we get one of the stories of Abraham and Lot, where Abraham and Lot decided to separate because of their se- because their herds um, had grown so much and it was causing issues. You probably remember that. Some of you remember that story. And so Lot chose to go towards Sodom as the land looked better, and then Lot ended it in trouble. He got caught up in the middle of a conflict between kings and ultimately ended up a prisoner because he was living in Sodom and got taken away. And so Uncle Abraham got to come save him. So he took 318 men and did just that. And then in Genesis 14, uh, verse starting at verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so this unusual Melchizedek guy shows up. And he's called, for the first time, King of Salem. And for the first time, he's also called Priest of God. It just, it just made no sense. And I, I wonder, if I was alive in that day, if I would have been a little bit skeptical. Because typically, we get in our mind that this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way that if you're in this position, this is what you're supposed to do and act. And if someone falls out of that, then we automatically have, like, flashing sirens, question marks. What is this? Is this person legit? And I'd imagine... If I were alive in that day, there would have been a similar reaction. I mean, if you look at other king, another king that tried to act in a similar way, like Saul, they Saul got in trouble for trying to do the exact same thing. Do you remember that? It was unusual to say the least. Then in Psalms 110, he appears again. Psalms 110 is a messianic psalm, meaning that it points to the Messiah. And it tells us the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then here in Hebrews, we find the meaning. So what are we being shown in this text? In this text, we're being shown how Jesus wasn't just any ordinary guy. And this was especially important in Jesus' time to kind of explain to the Jewish people this isn't just some Joe Blow bagger or he's not just another prophet or priest, but Jesus is someone significant. 
we're told about that he's in that order of Melchizedek. In that Melchizedek is like Jesus. However, it's not saying that he is Jesus or that he's literally an eternal being. It's making the point that his name should be associated. That their names are, should be associated with each other in righteousness and in peace. He then makes an argument, once again talking about Paul, makes an argument from silence. His point is that we don't know anything about his father, Melchizedek's father, his mother, his genealogy. We don't even know anything about his death. He's not trying to say that Melchizedek wasn't born, um, that he just magically existed from nothingness. Or he's not trying to say that Melchizedek never died. His point is how this points to Jesus. That Jesus has risen and actually lives forever. That Jesus is literally an eternal being having an always. He also points out how he is greater than Abraham. Now, look at Abraham in Jewish history. For someone to say that Jesus is greater than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, like the forefathers, um, like that wasn't a tiny thing to be scoffed at. Jewish Christians reading that or hearing that would have been, are you, like, are you serious? Have you gone off the deep end? But he says, yes. He is the greater being. Greater always does the blessing. I mean, he blessed Abraham because he's greater than him. And so Jesus, as a part of the line of Melchizedek, is greater even so. Look at how significant this man should be in and through your life. What is he getting at? He's building a case that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and therefore greater than Levi. And therefore, Jesus is ultimately greater than all. That all of this points to Jesus Christ. If we pick up in verse 11 of chapter 7, It says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, through the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than just naming one in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessar necessarily a change in the law as well. This is the way things were done. He's explaining like this is what normally happens. This is what we normally do. Explaining this is how things are different. 
I'm not just reading this for fun. Like, this is really important to understand where we're going this morning. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at an altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Like, Old Testament priests didn't even come from this tribe. This dude's different. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the base of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, not based upon the religious system of the day, but by the power of an indestructible life. Thank you, God. Does that excite you? For it, it is witness to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Root religion, institutional religion, never makes things perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Wow. But it doesn't stop there. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of the better covenant. Does that excite you guys? Like, I realize that some of this isn't new, but it should be stirring your spirit this morning. Re-recognizing, or maybe for the first time understanding how significant Jesus was, how different he was in the life of the church, in our church history, what brought us to where we are today and makes us the people who we should be today. And it doesn't end there. The former priests were many in number. There were so many of them. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thank you, God. 
And it's not done, folks. This is so amazing. This is so exciting. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Wow. It was deemed fitting that you and I would be deserving of such a high priest. One that's holy, innocent, unstained. One that's separated from sinners but chooses to abide among them and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of other people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been who has been made perfect forever. It's not such a powerful passage. When's the last time any of us read that and truly heard the incredible message that's being spoken to us there? I'll be honest. When uh, I was led to this passage three weeks ago, I don't know how many times I've read through that. I've been a Christian since I was 17 and really gave in to God in my mid-20s. And I found myself drawn to examine the life of Christ for this message. And that passage came to, to mind. And I read through it and I'm like, oh my goodness. The love of God that is shown to me through this. What I have to learn and glean from this about my life and the way I need to live my life because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so there's three important things I want you to see in this text in the short time we have left about Jesus as our high priest. Three things that I believe are important enough to not just skirt over. Some of them may seem a little bit elementary, but they're so significant to who I am as a Christ follower, as someone that says I want to be as Christ was. I want to live and act as close as I can to who and what Christ did. The first thing, Jesus is the better high priest he is of a better order. And we see this case has been made so clearly, so plainly. Paul was a lawyer. It feels like it would be an open and shut case. But the order of the Chalcedek was and is of the better order when compared to the Old Testament Levite. Excuse me, order. We see the point is proven with the blessing and the tithe. And Paul wants us to see 
something better was always coming, was always the plan. It was never God's intention and continues to not be God's intention for our lives, for us to have to pay the cost of our sin. In that time, the cost was through killing of bulls or sheep. All of that was pointing to a deeper need for a better sacrifice and a better priest. And Jesus was and is that unlikely priest. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily like they used to. Jesus is the better, the perfect, the superior high priest. And remember, Bechelzedek was not only a priest, he was a king, like we talked about. We talked about how it wasn't something that happened in Israel. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And the writer points out, Jesus of the tribe of Judah. He is a descendant of David, but he's also our high priest of order, of the order of Melchizedek. He's a descendant of a king, but he's also a descendant of a high priest, the greatest high priest previous to him. In Jesus, we have both this king and this high priest. You have the one that is as one person in being. The one who can represent us to God and God to us. You have the one who became like you, but is also exalted above you and I. Because of all of this, this is why Jesus offers a better hope, guarantees a better life through the ultimate covenant. Are you following? In verse 19, it says, in Jesus, a better hope is introduced. In verse 22, Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Jesus is, always will be, whether or not in the current season in life you're willing to or able to recognize who Jesus is. The scripture says he is forever the better high priest that has and will continue to enact the new and better covenant. The law, religion, institution, human beings can't save. The only thing that you can learn from institution, institutionalized religion, and people that are legalistic and, and all about law, the only thing you see there is the need for salvation. They can talk about our sin. They can talk about our wrongdoing. But those words at the end of the day are only empty actions. Because salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus who has come to save. And he's better because of a perfect nature. 
a nature that we can learn so much for. We can try to imitate, although never completely clone or copy. In verse 26 of chapter 7, it says that he is wholly innocent, unstained, that he is separated from sinners. That while he became like you and I, that while he chose to exist as human with us, that he didn't sin, that he continued to remain holy, but somehow seems impossible to me. He resisted temptation of sin, which is pressing on all of us. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's, it's there. And he chose to walk among us, to spend time with us, that he died for sinners without becoming a sinner. We learn that because he is perfect, sorry, he is better because he is perfect in his works. We learn that his ministry is eternal. His sacrifice is final. It is important to note that he did spend time. We're going to pause here for a quick second. He did spend time with sinners, but yet managed to maintain his holiness. I challenge you this morning, how much time are you spending in your Christian bubble and avoiding people that church has been calling of the world. I can't stand that term. Other human beings that don't necessarily know or care about Christ. How much time are you following his perfect nature? Jesus' perfect nature was to spend time with the most hated people of his time, tax collectors. They said to him, how can you go over to a tax collector's house? Don't you know who he is? He had a literal prostitute come before him and wipe his feet with her tears, pour perfume on his feet. And they said to him and scoffed at him, don't you know who she is? Like, if you're truly Jesus the Messiah, like, why are you letting this sinner spend time with you? But his nature was to love the least, the most hurting of these. And how many of you know, agree, and understand that we are called to act as Jesus act, acted? To follow after even the perfect nature of God, although we'll never be perfect. And that's okay. How many of you understand that this morning? If we truly believe that Jesus is the better, that he is supreme, that he is the perfect high priest, then that needs to mean something. Because as Christ's followers, are we following? Are we acting as he acted in our own lives? And please don't hear me this morning saying that We're all a bunch of no good, not doing what we should be doing Christians. 
that this church is just terrible because I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I'm not perfect. I have work to do. I desire to see this church filled with new believers in Christ. I desire to see me and 100% of us when physically and mentally and emotionally able to loving on other human beings that just haven't had the opportunity to decide for themselves what they believe about Christ. Verse 9, he, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeys. Jesus offered you and I eternal salvation. I get choked up about it every time I talk about this because it just, it blows my mind. <laughs> blows my mind. I knew me. And yet he loved me. He is the source of salvation, not just for me, but for my neighbor, for my coworker, for that person that just drives me crazy bonkers. And I'm not talking about my wife. We live in a world today that is looking for utopia. We have people making crazy, drastic life choices, selling everything that they own and building a one-square-foot house and fitting their life into that somehow. People are yearning for something different. And as Christians, we know what we're longing for. We know what we truly need. We know that if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter what job you have, who you're married to, although I'm married to an amazing person, who your kids are once again. Man, most days I'm pretty lucky. Most days. Your hobbies, doesn't matter how fun your hobby is. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter who's governing in the world. If you haven't found Jesus, you're just going to keep looking. You're just going to keep wondering. And Jesus, not government, not a career, not love, not power, not success, is the source of true satisfaction of eternal life to all who obey him. And at the end of the day, obedience and following is what really characterizes us as Christians, along with love thy neighbor as thyself. But even doing that is an act of obedience. This is in verse 25, constantly he 
is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Completely. 100% of humanity. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter what your sin is. doesn't matter what your nationality is. doesn't matter what you current or who you currently believe in. To the uttermost. And once again, I challenge you, you don't experience a perfect life. You don't experience a life without pain or difficulty at time. But you do get to experience a better life. And God's desire is for all to come to perfect salvation, to be saved to the uttermost. To understand the priesthood which he holds. He desires for everyone to be completely saved. To see his work of salvation acting in all people's lives. Why would you and I stand in the way of our neighbor experiencing that as well? Why would, be, why would I be selfish to think I need to hold this for me and not open up my life to all people, to allow all people to see what Christ is doing in me? And maybe they can't see what Christ is doing in me. That's a bigger problem, isn't it? Why can't they see Christ acting through me? And some of us this morning may need to consider that. And I know that can hurt. It can be really tough to be brutally honest with Graham Knowles. But it's in recognizing my shortfalls, my pains, my failures. It's in understanding what my sinful habits are and bringing them to the Most High Priest that he continues to finish the act of salvation and drawing me closer to him. He desires to save all to the uttermost completely forever. Who is salvation for? Who is salvation for? Everyone who draw near to God through him. finish off this morning, Jesus, point three, continually offers intercession for us. Wow. Continually offers intercession for us, all of us, not just us that are saved, but he continues to seek after the salvation of all of humanity. 
I'm not going to be funny with what I say. I know that I need to specify that at times. I'm not joking around with what I'm saying. Osama bin Laden, Jesus was seeking after his salvation. Oh, my goodness. That Jesus would love and intercede after a sinner such as I. One of the things that you can take away from the passage You don't read about it. It never talks about Melchizedek's priesthood ending. And in the same way, Jesus' priesthood is never unending. This is how secure our eternity, our salvation needs to be. This is how safe. We're not seeking after something temporary for us or for others. We're seeking after forever. We're seeking after a Savior that doesn't just do an act of salvation and then walks away saying, oh, the work is done. But he is continually interceding for all of us. And guess what? God listens to his son. When you suffer, when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you're tempted, when life just seems too hard. Know this, but don't just know this and keep this knowledge to yourself. Know this and share this. Jesus is interceding for you. Forever. There's never a moment when you don't have an advocate the Father. There's never a moment when suddenly you're under eternal condemnation. You're standing with you're, you're standing with God the way God sees you is as permanent as Jesus' ministry is before God for you. Isn't that good? Believe it, understand it, share it. You have one interceding for you. You have one that's perfectly bringing you before the Father. Jesus has not, he will not ever stop. And so there's a challenge to each of us, regardless of how long we've been in the faith, regardless of where we are in our journey, to never stop persevering to follow after Christ so that others can follow after him as well. To stay the course, to rejoice in his goodness and his kindness and declare it daily instead of weekly. you stand in their day way back then thousands of years ago
Jesus was, or sorry, the writer was saying to them, Jesus is a better way. Why go any other way? Why go back to your old ways? Why go back to a feeble, sinful priesthood that insults God in his ways? I don't know about you, but I don't want to insult God. In our day, he's still saying, if you grow tired, weary, distracted, tempted, if you lose focus and you find yourself looking somewhere other than Jesus, you find yourself trying to measure up, remember, we have interceding on our behalf a great high priest who has saved you and desires to save those around you and utilize you as a tool as a Christ follower. He has a model for our life. We have to decide, am I going to follow that? So let me ask you a question. It's an important question. Do you know, do you truly know this high priest? Not just through your initial act of coming to him and confessing your sins before him and accepting that first act of salvation. I'm not talking about baptism. These are all important things, don't get me wrong, but do you truly know our high priest? And are you truly following after him? God, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for the consistency of who you are. That you're never changing, that your love is never waning, that you never stop interceding on my behalf, on our behalf. God, I pray that we would not grow tired in following after you and seeking to know you more and seeking to model your nature to those around us, that we would never become tired in those actions. God, I pray for those of us that may be tired or may have become stagnant, that your Holy Spirit would stir us up, Lord, for both our own sake as Christ followers and for those that are around us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. I'm going to ask the uh, prayer team, the breakthrough team, those that are here to come forward. If you uh, desire for prayer this morning, whether it's directly related with what we spoke about this morning, maybe you desire prayer for 